Hey, deserving listeners. I have a special guest back on the podcast, Yuval Leor, who has been on previous episodes talking about evolution and the development of sexuality and, and other topics of interest. And he wanted to come on the podcast to talk about something that I do not understand enough to introduce it. <laughs> so I thought we would just get into it and maybe uh, as we talk about it, I'll understand uh, what he wants to talk about here. Uh, this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Can you introduce yourself uh, to podcast land, please? Uh, yes, my name is Yuval Laor, L-A-O-R. Uh, I have a I guess a PhD in culture studies. I do have a, a background in science, uh, so I will be talking a little bit about si uh, science. But uh, right now I'm writing a book about the evolution of the capacity for fervor. And uh, my my PhD advisor was also uh, Eva Yablonka, who is uh, great, and I recommend uh, her books. Uh, she is an evolutionary theorist, so she taught me uh, uh, a more up-to-date uh, way to think about evolution that is uh, very different than the popular vision. And that has informed many aspects of my thinking. And uh, today I want to talk about uh, this movement called the New Atheism, uh, where, uh, which, well, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it. So. Well, let's talk about it. What's the New Atheism? <laughs> so the New Atheists, they're... Uh, uh, there's there's four primary ones that are that people talk about, and these are Richard Dawkins, uh, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, and uh, Christopher Hitchens, and they uh, propose a, a very militant kind of uh, aggressive atheism. I don't know if, if militant, but but very uh, aggressive, un unapologetic, and they uh, represent the the argument between religion and science in a in a very specific way which i think is very very problematic and they they claim that we should uh confront religious people and that they see religion as a collection of ideas and they see just in general culture as a collection of ideas and it is a very weird way to think about culture because nobody ever thought about culture as just ideas we always knew that there's emotions, there's rituals, there's collective, you know, behaviors, there's crowd psychology, there's all sorts of various different things that culture involves. There's institutions and ideas are, are one aspect, an, an important aspect, but uh, we know uh, that, first of all, you can believe with all your heart in ideas that you don't know what they are, right? Yeah. So a person can believe that whatever is in the Bible and the Quran is true, but they don't know what's in there, right? So let me clarify. So there are what we might call the old atheists who, uh, you know, I'm just going to take a stab at this, were people who did not believe in a deity, and but didn't really take a political stance necessarily against religion. They just chose or came to the conclusion or whatever that they just don't adhere to a religion and they don't believe in a higher power. And, and then the new atheists were people that said, you know, came to a similar conclusion, but also tacked on the notion that 
religion has to be eradicated and that well it's that it's the source of all, all evil you know and or, therefore needs to be eradicated as yeah well and 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 they they hope for that but um i, I don't know how how genocidal i mean it sounds the eradication sounds a little a little extreme but yeah and and uh, previous atheists, they were just not united by too much. So there's all sorts of different uh, types of, of atheism. But uh, uh, the new atheists is a, is a specific type of atheism, which I, I will go into. It. So they have a, a number of assumptions about religion. Uh, uh, and even though they, they don't, they're not scholars of religion in any way, they don't really... Uh, study religion, but they see religion as first as a collection of ideas. And if you have, uh, there's four traditions uh, to explain religion or what religion is or what its function is. One being that it's a social organizer. Uh, another one, it's a proto-science. It's a way to explain the world, uh, right? So that the storm is explained by God and things like that. Uh, there's religion as alleviating fears and, and uh, uh, stress and trauma, right, and fear of death specifically. And there's the the uh, religion as a side effect, just uh, a thing that is accidentally here with us. And we, if we eradicate uh, it, we will not lose anything. Right. So they they adhere to the and and of course I think that this division is itself problematic, but it it is a historical division of approaching the subject and they are committed to the religion as a side effect uh, aspect of, uh, or, you know, way to think of religion. Right. That, and I don't know if they have this point of view, but some consider religion to be an extension of the psychological mechanism, so to speak of uh, children as they look up to parents uh, particularly when the child is, you know, young and infant, toddler, preschool age, and they they see the parents as all knowing, all powerful uh, people who can punish you uh, and completely ruin your life, have total power over you, but can also give you the world and the universe and uh, love and attachment and um, all the things that we associate the relationship between parent and child. And then as we age, we learn that our parents are not all powerful, but we retain that instinct to have a uh, use or a place in our mind for such a creature, such a role, a relationship. And uh, so then over time, people and culture would develop this notion of, of a God uh, to replace the uh, void that parents leave upon humanizing themselves. It, I think that they would be uh, sympathetic to that, and I think some of them would, would support that. There are other uh, narratives, uh, for example, that, that uh, uh, religion is, uh, for, for them, they think of it as, as uh, uh, memes which are, uh, selfish memes, which are sort of parasitic uh, thought viruses that take advantage of us. So they might also, some of them might also uh, include this, you know, what, what this uh, uh, developmental aspect of, of where it comes from. And there's another aspect that it's, it's about predator uh, detection or, 
or agent detection, predator or prey. So it's better for us to uh, mistake a, a, a rock for a bear than a bear for a rock. Therefore, we always are error, you know, make errors towards thinking that things have agency when they don't. So that's also another another uh, uh, explanation of, of religiosity. But w- what you said just explained the tendency to believe in a God. And of course, religion is a lot more. There's religious emotions, there's religious experiences, there's rituals, there's, uh, uh, you know, all sorts of, of rites of passages. There's, there's collective behavior where, which, which can transform people. You have conversion which is a sudden change that uh, you can change your life suddenly. I mean, there's also slow conversion, but none of these things are explained by the, it's easier for us to think that there are agents that are super powerful because we used to be babies. You know, it's, it's a very one dimensional aspect of, of religion. That it, yeah. The uh, coming together of people in a community to uh, do something together and to, feel good together um, to uh, sing songs and um, say hello and laugh and give and congregate is something that is, uh, uh, you know, another function and another benefit. Which also can be good, good or bad. You know, people can get together to, to plot the murder of their neighbors, you know, so. Right, but I didn't say that, you know, and certainly atheists but, can get together to plot to murder people. Yeah, for sure. Um, but the, it's uh, the, the so, so yeah, r- right now we're not talking about whether it's good or bad, but we're trying to, to describe it. The, they, um, the, the new atheists will, uh, uh, they, they maintain that it's, it is bad, that religiosity is, uh, it's just a way for us to make mistakes. Uh, some of them, uh, for example, Richard Dawkins presents religion like fairy tales that we believe because, again, they think that culture is constructed of belief. So as I start to say that you can believe in things that you don't know what they are, but also you can ignore the central beliefs of your faith. So you can be a Christian and not give all your money to the poor. Right. It is. I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but because that's a lot of the Bible is about that. But it is uh, so. On the one hand, you can believe in things you don't know what they are, and you can ignore the central beliefs of your faith. But um, this is just to show that uh, that religion is not just beliefs. It's a lot more nuanced and complicated, and uh, we need to understand it in in a way that uh, is is more you know more more connected to reality and. Um, here we see in the new atheist this idea that it's just like fairy tales that are believed you know it's uh, uh it's just mistakes that people make it's just that you know you can either believe that you know the noah's ark or you can believe in jack and the beanstalk and they don't see that uh, uh one of them is within a religious context and one of them is within a fairy tale context so they are both mistaken beliefs but um Right. So, so it, it sounds like you have a problem with new atheists. What is that problem? My problem is that, uh, uh, first of all, the, their, their conclusions, I think, are very problematic. So they uh, uh, conclude that we should always confront religious people. So when we hear people who are religious but are, you know, low fervor, just 
you know, not homophobic, not, uh, you know, uh, it's their religion doesn't make them hold a uh, horrible views, but are just, you know, regular, um, religious people that we should, uh, first of all, not distinguish between them and extremists, uh, that the extremists are the ones that take religiosity to its full, uh, uh, you know, realization and that we, uh, I mean, so, sometimes even that, that we should insult religious people that, and that we should, uh, distant, the, the division should be between the atheists that got it right and the religious people rather than the atheists or the low fervor people, the people who are not engulfed by, uh, uh, their religiosity to, uh, and, and it's a, a kind of a, a zealot religiosity. So I think that you need to understand fervor. And if you want to understand, for example, uh, we just had, you know, nine 11, uh, a couple of days ago, right? Yeah. Uh, we don't should not think of all Muslims as the people who did the terror attack of 9-11. We should think of the high fervor people who are detached from reality as uh, like each other, whether they're Christian, you know, Muslim or, or Jewish or, or whatever um, disposition, you know, Nazis or, or, you know, can be communists, but it's high fervor and it's a, uh, 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 a kind of a zealot uh, religiosity, which I think that we need to separate that kind of religiosity from regular religious people and not lump them together. Uh, so, for example, by by in France where they outlaw uh, religious symbols, so you, you you know you can't have cover your hair if you're uh, in a French school, and that just lumps together the moderate religious people with the extremists. It forces them into religious schools. They can't go to secular schools. It's, uh, it's just counterproductive. And yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I think that's, um, I mean, let, let me, uh, and I agree that there are a lot of overgeneralizations, particularly around Muslims in America. I mean, <laughs> I just watched, have you seen the Sasha Baron Cohen uh, clips? Yeah. He is, he's it's somewhere in, you know, a rural area, I, I'm guessing. And he's at a town meeting of some kind. And he is proposing that this small town build a huge mosque. And he's, he's talking about how, um, you know, uh, he wants to bring a lot of tourism, a lot of other Muslims to this town. And this, and these townspeople are, are um, flat out saying statements like all Muslims are terrorists, all Muslims are evil. And that is just uh, empirically and philosophically and morally wrong and wrongheaded and silly and misinformed and, uh, you know, propagandized. And, and um, so, yeah, but the issue of fervor, I think is interesting because I, because I can imagine a, uh, in, in Seattle, we, and, you know, out there in Boulder, you do too, I'm guessing have, uh, churches that are, uh, quite liberal and open-minded, uh, in Seattle, we have universalist Unitarian churches, which are known to be, uh, very open-minded about all religions and not homophobic. And one could have quite a, a, a large amount of fervor 
in that uh, uh, social context, that religion, and yet be politically non-problematic? Am, am I not understanding fervor right? So, I, well, first of all, fervor in itself, uh, I think, is also value neutral. So you can have, you know, you can be in the French resistance and have fervor against the Nazi occupation. You can have really good fervor, and fervor is a very, very strong motivator, and which sometimes goes towards the good and sometimes towards the bad. But when you have a high level of fervor with a, a very bad, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, ideas and tradition, <clears throat> traditions, uh, especially when that combines with large amounts of money, you can have really, really big disasters like 9-11, like the Koch brothers, who are high fervor libertarians who, uh, with a lot of money, are, are working against against the, the democratic nature of this country. Um, <clears throat> so the fervor is a, a risk factor, but it's not uh, it's not itself sufficient to 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 say it's bad. Right, and and couldn't you also have someone who held uh, problematic, as we define it, political beliefs and um, I don't know, uh, beliefs about how the world should work and not have much fervor about it. I like money and I have a lot of money and I want to keep my money or, and I just, and I also, you know, hate homosexuals. But I never think about it. You know, I, 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 I and, and it's, if, if you ask me to, to think about it, then I say, yeah, there is a verse in the Bible, but it doesn't. Uh, and, and I think that that is, a problem, especially if that person has has uh, homosexual family members. But on itself, it's not uh, uh, as as you know. It, it it that's not a person that would do hate crimes. That is, but it could be. Yeah, you know that I, with the motivation, but the, the the motivation and the 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 attitude, the moods need to be there, and it's not just the beliefs. Right, fervor is a yeah. As you say, fervor is a risk factor, but. I don't know. I could, I could just imagine someone being like, again, just sticking to the, to the capitalism idea. It's just like, I have a lot of money. I like money. I value myself having more and more money and I don't care about uh, exploiting the poor and society for me to get more money. I'm not particularly um, fanatical about it. You know, I'm not going to strap a bomb to my chest or anything, but I'm going to, you know, day by day, decision by decision, vote by vote, contribution by contribution, just slowly build my uh, empire. So I, I think that, that 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 sometimes happens, but I think that in, in, in many times the the motivation behind people like Paul Ryan or like the Koch brothers is beyond just selfishness. I, I think they do believe in the, the, that they're in an ideology that thinks that that concludes that to hurt the poor helps the poor. Well, that's true. I, I totally, I totally agree. But, but the fervor state, I, I just wonder how much so that the fervor could be towards that ideology. Right. Now there is, there might be a, a selfish fervor about, and it would, would usually be more of a family identity. It would not be fully selfish. Uh, right. So even Trump or, or, you know, the, uh, the Waltons, it's, it's not just, it's, it's for the, the, the family, you know, I'm not just doing it for myself. 
but because the, the, the high fervor many times is not, uh, um, it, it's not very selfishness, uh, selfish. It is towards the group, but the group can be also just your, your immediate family. Right. The, the question is, how, how, how did we get to people who believe that culture is just ideas? Well, can you, can you explain that a little bit? Because I'm, I'm confused by that. Just ideas, what, as opposed to what? Uh, as opposed to uh, emotions, motivations, uh, you know, diseases, you know, interactions with the real world. Uh, culture uh, occurs as, as it's, it's not just ideas in people's brains, but it's also institutions. It's also real estate. It's also infrastructure. It's also, uh, 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 you know, the, the way people, it's, it's uh, health. It's whether the society, you know, drinks alcohol or smokes weed. I mean, all those things would affect culture in a way that is beyond just uh, the list of beliefs that people uh, allegedly believe. And so new atheists don't acknowledge those other aspects. So they, they would say that you, they, they might acknowledge it, but they say that they don't, uh, that you can do an all else being equal kind of thought experiment. And that uh, all else being equal, someone with this idea compared to all else being equal, someone with that idea that the problem is with the ideas. So they're saying that any benefit that religion provides can be sustained with the elimination of religion. Is that what you're saying? Uh, so first of all, I'm not sure that they believe that there's any benefit that, that religion provides. Well, any, uh, any, well, I'm sure they couldn't deny that, uh, if, you know, if, if religion motivates you to give to charity, that that would be a bad thing. Um, so are they saying that, uh, <laughs> giving to charity would sustain, uh, is sort of independent of, of religion? Uh, I would, I, yes, I think that that's what they would say, but I, even, um, the, the giving to charity, they might think that it's the wrong charity. They might say that when you give to religious charities, then it's, you know, it's, it, it would go to. The, the bad things that religions do as well, which like gay conversion therapies or, you know, uh, whatever. And certainly if you donate to a group like the, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Westboro Baptist church or the church of Scientology, or, you know, that there are bad groups that when you, when you give them charity, you're not helping the world in any way. Right. I, I just want to, uh, self-disclose about, or I don't know, just sort of comment about my path with Dawkins and with, um, um, uh, what's his name? You, you mentioned him. Sam Harris. No, the other guy, the guy who died. Uh, Daniel. Oh, oh, Christopher Hitchens. Yeah. H Hitchens. Um, I, I don't know, past 10, 15 years have been following the two of them and the little bits of, of writing and videos that I had in interviews that I'd seen presentations that Dawkins had provided. I, I liked them. I uh, thought that they were um, uh, providing some interesting ideas. And, and so having said that with Dawkins, I, I'm more familiar with, he definitely has, I think he suffers from a similar fate that a lot of, 
charismatic thought leaders have, similar to like Jordan Peterson or I guess even Donald Trump to, to some extent, that they, uh, and I think now uh, um, Elon Musk is suffering from this also, that people become so in love with you and there's such a strong dedication to the man that they are surrounded by literally millions of people who are um, praising everything that you do and everything that you say. And eventually you just lose perspective that you're not a genius (laughs) (laughs) and that you don't know everything. And you start to, do and say things that are outside of your expertise and, and they, you know, cause it feels right to you. Um, and you, you know, you might've started with something that you did know about and gained power and prestige because you talked about things that were more, uh, uh sound, shall we say. And then as time goes on, you, you just start to spin out of control. I, back in the day, I remember Dr. Laura Schlesinger. I don't know if you remember her. Um, she had a, I, I don't know her. So. She had a similar kind of path. Um, uh, and uh, I, you know, like the, the example with Haw- uh, Dawkins was that he became known for his um, – his ability to explain to the masses evolution, you know, and a version of evolution, a version of evolution that which is completely wrong and debunked by the way has issues, but you know, that, but the general notions of evolution he adhered to as well, which for a lot of people, it it was the first time they really heard, you know, the, the notion of, of natural selection, you know, just simple, basic evolutionary ideas that, that Dawkins, I remember, um, presenting that uh, in a very charismatic way in his, you know, soft English accent voice. And, um, and then fast forward to when he is uh, talking about um, there, I've talked about this on the podcast before. There was a, there's a a woman in the skeptical science community, um, Rebecca, Rebecca Watson, who, um, I'll, I'll spare the details, but she, she ran into some kind of issue where, um, this guy scared her on the, in a elevator. Cause he, uh, he, he, she, I'll just tell you the little story. So she's at a conference and, and she gave a talk. And then at the end of the talk, she's going up to her hotel room in Vegas. And so she gets in the elevator and this other guy gets in the elevator with her and she doesn't really think anything of it. And they're, they're going up, you know, uh, cause she, her room is really high up in the tower and, and he turns to her and he says, Oh, I, you know, you're Rebecca Watson. I really like you, you know, that, that you know, I, I really respect you. And, sh- and she's like, Oh, great. Thanks. And then he, uh, kind of starts to chatter up and she's just, she's not really into it. She's just like, I just want to go to my hotel room, go to bed. And then he says, you know, uh, can you, would you like to come to my hotel room? Um, cause you know, I'm having some friends over, you know, I just love to, you know, hang out with you. And she wasn't terribly, upset about it but she in that moment she felt slightly afraid because it's like oh wait a second you're asking me up to your hotel room you're a big man we're in a tight space together alone in a hotel room when i get out of my ho- when i you know get out of the elevator and walk to my hotel room you know is this is this 
that situation that you hear about when I get attacked. And so she was scared. She got out of the hotel. She get, you know, got out of the elevator, went to her room. Everything was fine. And then she went on Twitter or something and said, like, guys, if you're in an elevator alone with a woman, don't ask her to your hotel room. It was some kind of like tip to, to guys. Just like, uh-huh. you know, it's she wasn't freaking out. She, she, she wasn't accusing the guy of being a rapist, but she just said it's not um, sensitive to the, the sort of fears that women have in situations like that. Mm-hmm. And um, there was this huge uh, split between those who understood what Rebecca Watson was saying and those who did not. And in the skeptical science community, you know, there's a lot of, shall we say, uh, men with regressive politics regarding feminism and understanding women. And sure. uh, so, and Richard Dawkins was one of those men. He actually, and he, he, he personally knows Rebecca Watson because, you know, they're both famous in that area. And Dawkins, uh, I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was um, at least reported that he spoke out against Rebecca Watson and said, you know, that she was overreacting and there's something wrong with with her and her perspective. And and I think that's just an example of that. It's like, okay, Dawkins, you've studied evolution. You're praised for that scholarship and the dissemination of, of that, you know, but you're not an expert on feminism and on the female experience and on rape culture and on uh, fears of sexual assault and trauma. You're clearly in the dark ages when it comes to that topic. So why are you talking out of your ass? But when, when you have so many people around you just telling you that you're awesome and, and everything you say is genius and match that up with, People who attack him, you know, I, I remember there was a debate with Dawkins and, um, oh, what's her name? She's like a real, she's on the right. She was big like 10 years ago. Um, she was on Fox News a lot and she was highly religious, you know, very conservative and um, very, um, uh, a very inflaming character. I can't remember her name, but. Phyllis Schlafly or? No. Um, a blonde lady. <laughs> Fox News. You said Fox News. <laughs> yeah, I got to look it up now. Yeah. Blonde lady, conservative. I mean, I can, I can give names. Uh, she, she, oh, culture. Yeah, culture and culture. Okay. Thank you. Um, so he, I think, uh, had a debate with her that was recorded at Dawkins and Ann Coulter. I, I'm not quite sure. Anyway, and... So there are a lot of people attacking him for being just for being atheist one and two for believing in evolution. And, you know, you had the, um, the intelligent design people and the, you know, religious people who don't like the idea of evolution attacking him. And so what that kind of creates is this, is this, um, this us versus them, uh, situation where it's just like, okay, we know everything and the other mm-hmm. people are idiots. And so I think that breeds a certain narcissism around your own ideas. And perhaps that's what led Dawkins to uh, go into evolutionary psychology, which you've debunked before the the idea of memes and those ideas. And maybe mm-hmm. that's also why he um, went into notions of um, religion and uh, had simplistic ideas 
that, uh, and maybe actually uh, were um, derived from the amount of uh, hatred that he was getting from religious people. I'm, I'm guessing Dawkins' world on a daily basis was a lot of really horrible interactions with some horrible religious people. <laughs> so I don't doubt that Dawkins' world religion was a, was a massive problem, right? Anyway. Yeah, but I, I think that, that Dawkins, to understand his thinking, it's much, it's much more important to understand his argument with the postmodernists than it is to, uh, uh, to understand his argument with religious people. So postmodernists, which are also uh, m- mostly atheists, you know, uh, Michel Foucault, uh, Jacques Derrida, a bunch of French, uh, mostly French, but not, not only French. Uh, but it's, it's a tradition. Uh, and, and in the sec- 60s, 70s, and 80s, it, it cumulates into what, what would become uh, called the science wars. But this is not, this is his argument with uh, Marxist thinkers, with leftist people. And I think that to understand where he comes from, that is much more more fruitful, which is what I, I think I I want to I want to try to to outline that angle of where that thought comes from. Okay, yeah. So, uh, but if, if just uh, uh, another note about Richard Dawkins that he uh, I've, I've seen him uh, give talks and he says uh, praising science uh, that. It's so great that science is willing to just drop its ideas the minute that something that there's an experiment that shows that a theory is wrong. Science gladfully throws away that theory and adopts a new theory. And he, he describes an old person who, uh, an old professor who, before he died, all his his life work was debunked. It was shown that he was wrong, but he was very happy that that. Uh, even though he was wrong, it's all part of the advancement of science and this and that. Now, Richard Dawkins refuses to uh, behave like this at all because his theories regarding the selfish gene, his, his idea that there's no, that it's, it's single gene selectionism, that it ha- it, you don't even have group selection on the level of genes. So you, you can't have gene networks working, you know. It's just, it's just such an outdated uh, way of thinking that he's still clings to so uh, yeah that's unfortunate and to me uh whenever i see people doing that i i think they're either just emotionally uh i don't know stunted in some ways so that it's really hard for them to reflect you know and think okay i know i have a vested interest in these ideas being true because i've gone on the record and stated my support and I'm famous for this and that. And if I um, allow or accept or even entertain the idea that these past ideas that I've promoted are um, problematic in any way, then maybe I will lose all credibility. No one will believe anything I say or buy any of my books. I mean, you know, Richard Dawkins might have books that he's published in the past that if he says, you know, if he agrees with the opposition, he, he would be basically saying all my previous publications are worthless in some ways. Yeah. And it's not, it doesn't have to be conscious. I think it's in most cases it's, it's, it's unconscious. Right. Right. So I, th- I think it's, um, uh, I've seen it, a, I've seen it a lot and 
I, as someone who is, you know, a sort of 0.1% version of these uh, figures, uh, you know, someone who says things, has opinions, and on a lot of ideas that I don't actually know that much about, um, people are going to criticize me. And mm-hmm. I, too, have a knee-jerk reaction to defend and to dig my heels in. But time and time again, throughout my life and professional life and as a clinician, incidentally, uh, letting go of one's defensiveness or attachment to past things that I've said is one of the most liberating scientifically in, you know, um, what's the uh, adjective verse of it, of integrity, (laughs) Um, uh, integrous, I'll just make up a word, Uh, things that, that one can do. And, and I find it to be extremely enjoyable once, once I take that leap and just say like, huh, I think I might have been wrong this whole time. And um, you, you might not be a narcissist. <laughs> well, I, or I'm narcissistic about my ability to actually. Exactly. Yeah. You can, you can channel it that way as well. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, or I'm just enough of a narcissist, but not too much, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, you know, sometimes I wonder because again, I'm a 0.1% version of, of these figures. And I sometimes wonder if I, decided to dig my heels in if I would actually gain more fame because <laughs> I look at some of these people and all the famous ones do not give in. Donald Trump, Richard Dawkins, you know, Hitchens. Uh, I'm guessing Sam Harris. I've, I have no idea who that is. I, I, I'm sure that's kind of a strange thing to people for, but I, I don't, I don't know. Certain You're not certain missing ones. too much. Okay. Jordan Peterson, for example, you know, there's, there's a, there's a lot of extremely famous people who have extremely opinionated, consistent, or at least they're very, they never say they're wrong. You know, these people will never, ever say I'm wrong or I was wrong. And, and sometimes there is a, there is a place for that, for them to be the representative of a certain theory, but we need to also see them within the context of other, other ways to think, right? Right. Um, but what do you think? Do you think I would be more famous if I was more stubborn with my ideas? Uh, I think, well, stubbornness, but also choosing the ideas. It's like, you know, Samuel Huntington, uh, no, it's not Samuel Huntington. It's uh, 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 the, the guy who wrote The End of History, right? A book called The End of History. And you know, with that title, you're going to sell a lot of books. Or, you know, if you wrote a book, all, you know, members of a certain religion are, are horrible or, or it, it, it's, it would, uh, you, you will find a, a small, you know, small or large group of very, very people who very strongly agree with you. Um, but it's, it's just, it's just, uh, you know, that's, that's not, there's no integrity. You're not, there's no genuineness and it is, it is, uh, immoral, you know? Yeah. To and choose, to and choose your opinions based on what what would be popular. Absolutely, and I wonder, uh, you know, about our society when it comes to this sort of thing because the flexible people don't rise to the top. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's the people who have, or I don't. I mean, can you think of any flexible person who, uh, you know, 
is well known today? Someone who's like, huh, well, maybe I was wrong about that. You know, can you think? Um, let's see. So the, there are the people that have two, for example, for example, there's the early Wittgenstein and the late Wittgenstein who completely disagree with each other, right? So there is sort of that, but but they would be dogmatic in each one of their phases. Yeah. Um, the ones that renounce everything they did uh, previously. But uh, I'm sure that there's, so first of all, there are people who have a narcissistic tendency, I think, and even sociopathic tendencies, uh, or cluster B tendencies are, are maybe more likely to succeed in our kind of a, um, a, a media culture. But also, you know, today we live in a world where there's no stigma against selling out. You know, if if the Rolling Stones would have given satisfaction to uh, and uh, to make a commercial out of people would have been out in arms, we would have burned their their records. Selling out used to be something that was frowned upon, but today it is something that is completely, you know, that's how you succeed. You you make a you know make a product and then you sell out. You sell it to the billionaire. You sell it to the yeah. That's that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that recently. I, you know, you and I are old enough to remember those times in the in this in the eighties and and early nineties. If yeah, the Rolling Stone. I remember there there was actually a situation I think where the Rolling Stones actually gave some one yeah, of the songs. Yeah, start me up. They gave to Microsoft or something. Oh, Microsoft. Okay, and the outrage from fans. And today, yeah. if Kanye had a song for, or Taylor Swift had a song that was used for Target or something, you know, which I'm guessing there are. It would say good for her. Yeah. It's like, great. You know, she's, she's blowing up, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing. You know, we've, we, some, some people I think look at the eighties and think, oh man, they were so materialistic and they were so into money. You know, you think of, American psycho and these kinds of things. And in, and in my perspective, you just look at the average person, the materialism has just skyrocketed. And the lack of solidarity. The, the what, what, what do you mean? Meritocracy over solidarity. So instead of having solidarity with the poor, you know, pe- people, I mean, in this country, people are expected to vote for their self-interest rather than vote for the interests of the people who are worse off, you know? Yeah. So, unions are about solidarity there uh and and there is a tension between solidarity and meritocracy so right. solidarity is helping the least advantaged people and meritocracy says that if we help the people who are most advantaged then that's going to help everybody or it's going to be able to uh, achieve and i think we need some combination of the two but the the lack of solidarity that people today have i think is very problematic yeah i i i grew up in a you know, how old are you, Yuval? I'm uh, 43. Okay, so we're in the same same general area. <laughs> um, I grew up in a time that I would perceive as being of the the sort of coasting for solidarity and unions and labor um, uh, relations, I suppose, to the point where a lot of jobs that I had in the 80s, 90s, had the benefit of what unions provided, but without knowing how we got there, you know, Mm -hmm. like I I would have a job that I would get a break every hour or I would get paid well enough or my benefits would be good. 
but at the time I didn't perceive that it, the only reason why I had those things was because of people before me who had fought and maybe even died for those kinds of expectations because in the past and really anytime if a, you know, a capitalist can get away with it, that, you know, they're going to squeeze as much as they can out of labor. That's just, that's the whole idea. Yep. And so I just thought, well, this is just the way things are. And why do I need to be a part of a union? I, I remember I worked for um, Ernst, which is like a Home Depot back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I hated the fact that I had to pay union dues. I just remember just thinking, because I earned so very little money and I was part-time. And I just remember having to give money to this to our union. I just thought, like, this is worthless. And I think... I even like, it was voluntary to pay. And I think I just like refused to pay for, cause I was like, oh, I'll probably quit before they actually like fire me about this. But, um, and I had a lot of other jobs that were sort of like that. And then fast forward to just recently working at my university, uh, as a, as a professor. And there was talk about, uh, forming a union for the, uh, teachers. Mm-hmm. And at first I was like, Oh, come on, you know, like, can't we just work with administration and, uh, and we, you know, we, we hand over our, our, you know, percentage of our paycheck to these yahoos every month. Like this doesn't seem like a good idea. And because I came from this tradition of just like, well, you know, unions are just money pits, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, um, contrary to my, I mean, I went along with the group and said, absolutely, let's form, form a union, but I, I was ambivalent about it. Let's just put it that way. Uh-huh. And then once we formed the union, we, uh, the union, uh, not me, I didn't do much at all, but the union and faculty members that were, um, instrumental in the, uh, efforts, uh, fought administration and, got our contracts to be so much better. <laughs> we yeah. worked less, we got paid more, our benefits were protected and, uh, and administration couldn't just walk all over us anymore. And I was like, Whoa, that's right. You know? And then of course, knowing history and, and the first part of the 20th century in a lot of Western countries and um, how important it is for, for labor to, uh, become uh, to solidify (laughs) to have solidarity and and to fight back because otherwise the you know the powers that be will just slowly disseminate and and or uh you know separate and 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 just do whatever they want because they know that you need the job and and uh, And there's there's a long line of people waiting to replace you for cheap yeah and so i think there's but there's this other side of it of like when unions don't do enough or when they end up doing things that the labor doesn't really want to, or they're lazy or something, you know, there's obviously unions aren't universally, uh, uh, wonderful. There's actually, of course. And there's, there's, they've had historic problems with organized crime sometimes and things like that. But of course you need, you need unions, you need, uh, uh, but what we have, and this is, this is also part of, of this, this narrative that I'll get to hopefully, well, I'll get to soon, um, is that we, we replaced the, the, uh, um, the conflict between labor and capital 
with uh, a lot of people in this country with a strange idea that the conflict is not between labor and capital, but between individuals and groups and states, right? So there's collectivists. So you, you, you can have Republicans say some stuff like, you know, we need to unleash the power of the individual or, you know, just which it's just a, a completely bizarre <laughs> you know, way to think of, of things. Or, or when, when Margaret Thatcher said that there's no such thing as society, there's only individuals and their families. I don't know if you know that, that quote. Yeah, um, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but yeah, I, I mean, he actually said, that. I don't know if you're referring to this, but it sounds like you are. Uh, for those who don't remember, <clears throat> there was during the, um, maybe the 12 or the 16 presidential election, there was this, uh, debate, shall we say, fighting between people on the right, people on the left, regarding notion of um, of individuality and individual success, and uh, the right was saying that you know I am successful because I built my yeah the, you you didn't build that when they right, and then people on the left were saying that that notion is problematic because there are black people who grow up in the inner city and are low class and their parents are struggling with monetary issues and other kinds of problems. And this person can work really hard and get nowhere because of the oppression. And, you know, they can, they can apply for a job and work really hard and still not get the job or get fired early or get shoot by the shot by the police, you know, in situations mm -hmm. that white people wouldn't be. And so it's not, yeah. Okay. White person that built your, your business from the ground up. Yeah. You, you yeah, did. But, that. but that, what, that also the criticism was that the white, the, the person who built their business did not build the roads that come to the business, didn't educate the workers into being able to be literate you know, all those things that the state that has done for you to be, to make you possible, uh, you know, make it possible for you to have your business. Right. Good point. Yeah. It's, it's, it's those two they have the GPS, they have the, the right. internet, you know, we have the vaccines. I mean, all those government things, I mean, the cell phone, cell technology, the, right. the, 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 all of those come from, from government, uh, uh research and development. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the individualistic right talk, you know, uh, rhetoric was a veiled or not so veiled attack on uh, social programs and on the notion that anyone can succeed in our society if they, but, and the, and those who aren't succeeding are not trying hard enough is, is the, yeah. Idea. So that's, that's blaming, and, blaming and, the victim of course. And don't need our, you know, don't deserve our, you know, help and welfare and stuff. And, and not just that, if we help them, we will hurt them. Yeah. But I found that whole debate to be quite um, problematic from both sides, actually. I mean, I'm obviously on the left. And so I, I'm, I understand how society works or at least, you know, um, uh, in the way that people on the left do. And the, uh, way, the way that it was on the news or debates that I would hear people having was people on the right were, um, they were saying something legitimate, which was this person worked hard 
and they and they've worked hard and they they put in 60 hours a week and they made um sound business choices and their business succeeded that's all true you know that like you can give them that but uh and also also help them to understand all the other things that we've been talking about you know um but uh but I found that people on the left, when they would attack people on the right, they wouldn't, they wouldn't include that in there. And so people on the right were just like, man, people on the left are idiots. Like they're basic people on the left are basically saying that hard work doesn't mean anything, you know, like that's how, that's, that's what the debate ended up being. misunderstood. I think, I think the more, the more telling example is not the person who worked hard and succeeded, but the one who either cheated and succeeded or the one that worked hard and didn't succeed. I mean, it's the, 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 I think that everybody agrees that some people work hard and succeed, but the, the problem is that it's not guaranteed and there are, there is cheating. There is, uh, um, and there are people who work hard. They're the reason why everything worked, but they don't get any of the fruits of the labor that some investor or some, uh, uh, you know, financier uh, or some patent troll or, you know, the, the, um, but I, I think that it, it's just taken for granted that of course, sometimes the, the deserving person is the one that benefits from the fruits of their labor. Well, well, totally. And so I, but my point is, is that the way that the average, you know, person on the street understood the debate was, not anything in the realm of what we're talking about. Like, cause that's the debate. The, the real debate is what we're talking about, but the average person on the street, you know, the person on the right that I observed, the, the, if you just asked them back when all this was in the news, how would you describe this debate? The people on the right would be like, Oh, well, um, peop, you know, my side, the people on the right, we're right because when we work hard, we understand that you need to work hard in order to succeed. And you'd say, oh, well, how would you characterize people on the left? And they'd be like, well, those people just want handouts. You know, yeah, that, so I, I think that it, it depends. If you ask a successful person on the right, <laughs> they will tell you that they worked hard and they deserve it. And the, you should not you know, blame them for their success. If you ask someone who is a poor person on the right, they'll say the reason I'm poor is because the leftists gave everything to the minorities. <laughs> um, and so the, the, yeah, of course the, and, and uh, you know, I, you should, you should for, never forget that the, the, the right doesn't have monopoly over stupidity. There are a lot of very stupid people on the left that make very bad arguments and that don't understand things. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I do think that, if, uh, that there is a, a way to look at, uh, at, 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 of all things, history of, uh, of, of philosophy of science or just regular philosophy that, that can illuminate this. Uh, so let, let me, let me give a, like a five minute introduction to this. Uh, yeah. and this is, this is the, the deep intellectual roots of this kind of, of thinking. And it goes back to, uh, the beginning of the 20th century where, uh, things like science were becoming, uh, you know, triumphant. People were, uh, the, the, there was a very successful project of science. Most people still didn't think that science would tell us how to use science. They thought that, that would be something different. But um, 
what but the kind of science that was winning was a uh, um a structuralist science so what that means is that the difference for example between uh, gold and uh, lead was discovered to be a difference in structure right it wasn't a a, a difference in essence and uh this triumph of you know first of all this this uh, periodic table understanding of, of the elements which comes with quantum mechanics uh people thought that the smaller scales uh were more true that schrodinger's ex- equation uh explains chemistry right and that the smaller scales is where real science is this is where real knowledge is and this is um uh, w- after world war 2 when we have the genes being discovered then they were thought of as this the structure of biology so that if we understand genes we'll understand biology it's just like if we understand physics we'll understand chemistry if we understand chemistry we'll understand biology and this was the the triumph of this structuralist view of of science where everybody got uh, a lot of the scientists got physics envy right everybody wanted to be like physics everybody thought that if you're not doing math i mean not everybody they were always other voices but that real science is when you do math yeah yeah it's the the same, in psych- is, same in psychology psychology of course yeah i'll just say yeah. a, a quick little uh yeah. anecdote i heard recently from a colleague they are working with a team of other psychologists to publish an article and they did a mixed methods um, study which means that they had mathematical measures uh, that they were um, looking at and also they had some qualitative measures meaning that mm-hmm. uh non-mathematical more you know like a qualitative question yeah. is like how do how does drinking milk make you feel tell me how it makes you feel oh well it makes me reminds me of being a child you know da, da, da. and the uh her team of other of other researchers uh campaigned to get rid of the qualitative data even though it was really important because it it wasn't mathematical and they didn't think they could actually get the article published in a journal. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, so we're still in psychology oh, yeah. in tremendous physics envy for sure. In, 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 in some traditions, there are a few that are not, but yeah, of course. And the, what, what we're looking at is things we can measure. So, in, in my study, when uh, in religion, if you look at the early 20th century religion, the study of religion was a, a lot involved a lot of emotions. So in Durkheim and um, uh, William James, the, the emotions, but the emotions because they're not uh, measurable and you can't. Uh, they were sidelined at this period, and especially you know with, after World War II, you. You just talk about beliefs and behaviors and myths uh, and beliefs also because you can get an uh, someone can give an account, but emotions are sort of, you know, we can't mathematize, you know, we can't quantitatively talk about it. So, you know, we're going to marginalize that aspect. But they certainly try, you know, they'll have measures that yeah. supposedly mathematically measure emotion. Of course, they don't, but... Um, they measure a For construct, sure. yeah, and, and and it's you know the fMRI and and all those things that you know suddenly it becomes real. It gets into the realm of science. Therefore, we can talk about it intelligently. But if it's not science, it's just hand waving. You know, you're just waving your hands, and it's right. not you're just giving it just so story. Yeah. Um. So 
this, the, 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 now in the 20s, there were people called emergentists who thought that there are properties of groups, for example, or of that are either not in the parts or that you will never be able to figure them out from the parts. So um, today we know that you can never, you cannot solve Schrodinger's equation for an atom of gold because it is just, it would take a computer bigger than the size of the universe to work longer than the age of the universe. It just, uh, computationally, it is not plausible in any way whatsoever. Right. And, and in my world, we use the world, we use the the term systems thinking. Yeah. So that. systems thinking is where we come to from, in the 90s. So there, there is going to be a, a war uh, between the, the small scale people and, and soon I'm going to get to the backlash because there's going to be a, a backlash, which is the postmodernist or the post-structuralist backlash. And then they're going to fight it out. And at the end, complexity theory or systems theory will prevail showing that they're both wrong. But the, uh, the view of culture that you see in new atheists or the view of economics that you see in neoliberals, the people who think that the market is always correct, is a product, I, I argue, from the war that was between the small-scale physics envy side and a postmodern side. Okay. Uh, the systems, yeah, that's, they're, they're the ones that got it right. But they, uh, uh, economic thought, for example, didn't catch up with that, uh, unfortunately. Right. So, popular. right. so to help people understand in, in my world, uh, systems theory and cybernetics was developed mid-century, 20th century, and in the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, therapists and, and uh, psych, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists started to apply the terminology and the, the philosophy and the way of thinking to psychology and uh, discovered that um, schizophrenia and the symptoms of, of schizophrenia in an individual were a part of the overall family system and perhaps the societal system that you can't, you can't reduce schizophrenia and particularly other kinds of ailments like anxiety or depression or substance addiction. You can't reduce it to the individual and you particularly can't, can't reduce it to some gene that they have or, or some um, a brain wiring that they have. But of course it's, it's, it's culturally uh, congruent to think that way because of what you're saying in terms of reducing things to atoms and, uh, and the way that physics tends to operate. Um, yeah. And uh, it's not only that, but it's also just extremely simpler to think of. I mean, I, I teach, my students and my supervisees about systems thinking. And one of the, th one of the things that I say is that when you dedicate yourself to uh, uh, trying to understand systems theory, one and two, trying to analyze individuals and groups of people in a systems manner, you're committing yourself to being always confused because there's no way you can hold all of the data and causality in your head to fully grasp in a single moment the uh, the system whereas uh, a linear or a simplistic or reductionistic 
paradigm, you can hold it in your head in, in, in an instant, you know, like the notion that um, someone has a brain problem that causes them to be depressed is an extremely easy concept to comprehend. The idea that someone's depression is a manifestation, an emergent quality of a system that operates by the minister of treasury from 10 years ago, you know, what was that? That it's, it's because of politics. It's because the deregulation of the banks led to the crisis, which led to you being poor, which led to you being, you know, it's, it's all sorts of historical right. events that played a role in your yeah. personal depression. Right. Uh, the way that, the, you know, the, your sleep, the way that your relationships are, the way that your wife has been marginalized by, uh, you know, because of sexism. And the notions in your mind that you, you know, like there's just a billion factors that are playing itself out at the same time and are mutually affecting each other and influencing each other and reinforcing and, and um, just so many different factors. And you'll just never understand it. You'll never get it. And that's very upsetting to my students and supervisees. They're like, well, I went to school because I want to understand something. And I'm like, well, if you really want to understand how humans work, you have to dedicate yourself to knowing you'll never really get it. So I, I think that you can, you can know more or know less about the way humans work. But I think that uh, uh, understanding complexity theory and, and, and under, rather than, than uh, which, which maybe we can talk about in a separate uh, uh, talk, because it's, it's a whole topic unto itself. But in complexity theory, there's all sorts of stuff that, uh, you know, the, the black swan events, the self-assembling uh, criticalities, the phase changes, that, that complex systems are robust until suddenly everything changes, can, can change. There's all sorts of different uh, uh, things that we can learn when, that we can, we can understand better when we think through complexity theory. But, a lot of people don't realize that there is an option that that is not this physics envy, you know, trying to get the the small scales. If you understand the parts, the whole is never going to be uh, different than the parts. There are people who think that if, if you don't have that kind of knowledge, you don't have knowledge, but that's just wrong. There are other ways of thinking. Yeah. And uh, I think that it's a tough thing to do. Um, yeah. you know, well, first of all, many times you cannot do the all else being equal argument. So, right. because all else will not be equal. Right. It's, it's a similar talk in terms of what we talked about before in terms of reducing psychology to a gene. To genes or to neurons or right. to parts of the brain. Right. Yeah. Uh, that the notion of evolutionary psychology and psychological mechanisms uh, at its simplistic uh, form basically says that you evolved to have a certain uh, brain reality that will result in a behavior. And the, uh, that is a linear reductionistic way. There's there's modules which don't change and it's, it's, it's all wrong. It's all, it's all, all all that. It's, it's wrong because it ignores the reality of the, uh, of reality, which is that the gene is a part of a, is, is one part of many parts of a system. And I I think that it's never, it's never existed on its own, you know, like a, like a gold atom exists. Um, you could argue that it doesn't, but 
there's ways of, of conceptualizing a gold atom as existing on its own. And it's a system in and of itself, like the electrons and protons and everything. But, but you can, you know, you can sort of look at a gold atom and, and, and make some uh, predictions about what it's going to do. Whereas you, it's impossible to look at a gene and say like, okay, what is this going to do? You know, all things left equal. Cause it's like, it exists in a cell and it exists in a overall human being, which exists in, context, in society yeah. and a, which exists in um, time and history and politics and, and uh, certain elements of, um, of nutrition, shall we say, and, and, you know, just, you know, billions and billions of infinite factors. So um, that's what you're talking about, you know, when it comes, when you're uh, talking about reductionism versus systems thinking. Yes. Now there is, uh, uh, in addition to systems thinking or complexity theory thinking, there is another option, which is the, you know, maybe the holistic or the, the privileging the large scales. So I'll, I'll give you uh, an example. There was, uh, for example, Richard Dawkins would tell you in the selfish gene, for example, uh, that we can understand from the way genes uh, operate, we can understand things about sexuality, that a male invests less and as such is going to try to have as many offsprings as possible and the female, you know, so there is, uh, uh, you can understand from the genes, you can understand sexuality. But the the, the backlash coming from the postmodernists and the post-structuralists, they said that, listen, if you want to understand sexuality, you, ne- you need to understand what happened in the today's American sexuality. You need to understand what happened in the Victorian era in the in 19th century. You need, we can show you many, many different types of sexuality in different places and in different times. The genes didn't change, but the sexuality is extremely varied in many, you know, cultures and many traditions. And, uh, that to understand sexuality, you need to understand history. Right. Now, and, and what they took it too far, maybe you're getting yeah. at this, is that they denied the, uh, the notion that biology might play a role. So some of them, some of them would, would, would uh, uh, deny it. Some of them would, would say it's, it has a role, but it's not, you know, it's not certainly not as important as, as people like, like, you know, the, the, like Richard Dawkins would think. But uh, also they focus a lot on the role of language. So we think based on our language. Our language is a product of history, right? Our the vocabulary, the way we use the language. So history comes into everything for the, in, in this tradition. And they took it to the, the other extreme. So for them, the large scales are the important scales and the small scales are not important. Right. And that was... A big battle, and and that battle, which culminated in the the, the science wars, um, radicalized both sides. Now, uh, <clears throat> at some point, the the postmodernist uh, uh, and poststructuralist, which are synonymous, they're different, um, same same thing. Uh, they fell out of fashion, especially outside of you know certain you know. Uh, 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 university departments. Yeah, yeah. But uh, what we are left with is uh, so there is the complexity theory people. There are the people who know that 
macroeconomics will never ever be reducible to microeconomics, you know, that we can never understand ant, an ant colony by studying an individual ant. You'll never understand cat behavior by studying the a cell of a cat. Um, that uh, you need to look, many different scales can be the, the important scales uh, that played a role. So if you leave your house and you get hit by lightning, then that's physics or meteorology. If you get bitten by a dog, that's ethology or, or zoology. Or um, if you get a disease, it's biology. If you get poisons, it's chemistry. If you get hit by a meteorite, it's the, the you know, the, the solar, solar system scale is the one that was the significant one. If there was an earthquake, it's geology, but there is no inherent uh, uh, privileged scales where the smaller scales or the bigger scales are the ones that are important. And um, so that, that is the complexity theory. And, and it, it's, it, it also comes from uh, um, economists who say, we will <laughs> listen, the traits of macroeconomics, the large scale economics are not the same. They're not reducible. We should not try to, uh, um, first of all, not mix the two, right? So libertarians, which come from the physics envy side of the argument, they would tell you, you know, you cannot have an income tax because person A cannot uh, uh, justifiably take money for person B. Uh, but this is individual reasoning uh, with conclusions on, on group, uh, group level traits. Right. Right. I mean, so to sort of jump off what you're saying, the libertarian view, which I have to say, when I was younger, I don't know, 18 or something, it appealed to me. I don't know exactly why. I must add a charismatic libertarian, explain it to me. No, but, no shame. <laughs> but the, the, the notion is that, uh, that you, uh, the, the sort of ideal uh, societal political uh, uh, configuration is one in which the government doesn't do much if, if it all exists. And so, um, and the notion is that uh, things work out better that way because people are free to, um, you know, to make their own choices and they therefore have more resources to give to charity or whatever. But none but, of that works. <laughs> right. But, but the, uh, we right. can do a whole podcast on problems with, that kind of thinking. Yeah. I mean, all we have to do is look at societies that have been on the spectrum, you know, from uh, more libertarian, so to speak, and less libertarian to see that, um, that it's really hard to set up a society, perhaps impossible that can actually, I mean, it, it all just depends on what you privilege. And I think that for, for most people, uh, for me anyway, um, what I privilege in terms of society is fairness and uh, and the least amount of suffering for everybody. <laughs> and uh, so the idea is, is that um, if there's a lot of taxes and which creates some suffering for the individual, um, what ends up, you get a huge benefit out of it because not only do you get roads and police officers and this kind of thing, uh, that you wouldn't get because if everyone was looking out for themselves, but you um, also get literacy and right and, and uh, any any health and any technology. I mean, this is all product of collaborations, right, you know, it, and it, traditions it, that build on each other. It's, right, it, and not only uh, sort of 
pretty obvious benefits to taxes like police and fire departments and stuff and roads, but, but also the way that the system works, which is that when you have people who are, you know, fall on bad times, like they lose their job, they have a head injury, their, um, their spouse dies and they're depressed. They, um, they just lose their job because their industry in their town folds or something and they don't have skills that can uh, easily translate to another job. Everyone benefits when, uh, and this can be measured, we tax everybody and, and funnel money and resources and training and the safety net to those people so that they don't fall too far, you know, get, get, you know, they don't through the hard time. Yeah. Cause if they're desperate people, are a problem. Right. You, right. You do not want a desperate working class, you know, like, uh, or a, a desperate any class, I should say. I mean, really. But uh, because crime goes up. Uh, and, and they get taken, de- desperate people get taken advantage of. I mean, in, in a libertarian war, world, if you find, you know, if there's someone drowning in the sea, you can go and tell, you know, I'll rescue you if you'll become my slave. And they'll have to agree to it because otherwise they'll drown. And then you'll just have slavery of people who signed a contract, you know? Right, right. And, and that's libertarian because, you know, libertarian. you're free to, to be enslaved, right? Right. And, and perhaps more pragmatically, it's uh, if you have a, if you're working hard and you're getting a fair wage and the capitalist corporation can turn to someone who is on the brink of dying because, they uh, don't have a safety net, the corporation can turn to that person and say, I will pay you one penny an hour and, yeah. they, and they'll do it because they can't, they, they don't have power. They have no recourse. And so they'd have to take that deal. You like now, have lost, now you've lost your job and because you, because there's no safety net, there's no political uh, yeah, of course. And if there's a demand for a thousand pilots and there's 900 pilots, they're all going to be millionaires. If there's a 1,100 pilots, they're all going to make minimum wage. Right. That's not a good system. Right. So, uh, so this, uh, this idea of systems thinking, um, and the, the paradigm that helps to understand how to, how to help all of us, you know, the, the real. Yeah. And, and, but if you look just the, 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 to think that there are traits that exist on the level of a beehive that do not exist on the level of the cell of a bee or an individual bee, it's not a radical way to think, you know, it seems like a pretty easy pill to swallow that, that, you know, groups behave differently than individuals. Right. But the, um, but for bees and ants, Sure, for sure. But Americans trying to like, I I was uh, giving a lecture a few weeks ago. And I was talking about social constructionism, which is basically what we're talking about. um, And about systems thinking. Mm -hmm. And um, I was, I I was getting real hot. (laughs) I was getting real on my soapbox with my students. And I could see them kind of looking at me like, Oh, my God, he's on a roll. And I, I started talking about how um, I have certain beliefs. So I was, I was trying to teach these, these students about how to be a good therapist. And one of the things that um, I will often soapbox about is that the notions that you have about how people should live are culturally bound and are yours. And other people, particularly if you're mainstream dominant culture, are going to agree with you. But 
there are many ways to live and there are many functional ways to live. And, and before you were a therapist, you could, you know, have your narrow uh, point of view and probably be fine. But as a therapist, you're going to be interfacing with people from all lots of different cultures. And, th- and you're also going to be nudging people or very directly giving advice to, to, for people regarding how to live. Like for example, um, whether or not you should use corporal punishment with your children or not. Mm-hmm. And what I was telling them, or whether you should be religious or not, you know, and what I was telling them was, um, I was just using myself. I was saying pretty much everything that I believe and everything that feels right to me has been, uh, has, has been, a has been given to me by culture. You know, if I, I, I grew up in a, in a liberal kind of bubble in Seattle and therefore hold liberal views. If I grew up in another bubble, I would have different views. Mm-hmm. And I, sure. I, I said that like extremely like uh, strong, shall we say to the students. And I could just see like half the students like shaking their heads, you know, they're just like, no, no, no. I have these views because they're right. And I chose those views, you know, and I'm, and I, and I could see them, you know, resisting this idea that, their belief system um, is, you know, not theirs, you know, they can hold it and that can be good and that's fine. You you know, there's nothing wrong with saying. And and there's certain beliefs that are theirs, whether they prefer one food to another might be their own actual, you know, well, but but at the same time, there are a lot of ideas that are. Well, but I would argue against that too. Like uh, the example I gave was, uh, regarding food is that I like spam. I mean, you've all, do you like spam? I don't think I've ever had the courage to try. Right. It's, it's disgusting. It's a, it's an empirically disgusting food. Uh, but because I'm Japanese American, I love spam. But Japanese Americans love spam. Hawaiians love spam. I could give you the the history goes back to when the American government imprisoned my family members and they gave, you know, they gave the Japanese Americans who were imprisoned, uh, army rations and one of the army to eat while they were in prison. And because there were so many of them, you know, there's like, well, give them army rations and one of the army rations for, so they didn't give them, there was, you know, not a lot of um, beef and um, chicken and fish and stuff, but they did have spam because that's like, you know, you can, it's, it's something that army people can carry with them because it's in a can, you know? Yeah. And so Japanese Americans and uh, would use it, to make sushi or to make different dishes, they would just adapt that protein into the cuisine. And so, you know, fast forward to 1970s. And as a kid, I would eat spam musubi, which is like spam sushi Mm -hmm. and, um, and spam and eggs and this kind of stuff. Hot dogs was another thing that, that was used. Um, I, I grew up eating, hot dogs that were cut and, and teriyaki <laughs> and oh. my friends would just make fun of me. They, they, Oh, Kirk's eating his hot dog coins again. And, um, but, uh, to me this, I love it now. Uh, but it's not empirically better food and it's, and it's, you could argue it's empirically sort of, no, bad of food, course, uh, but the, culture and, you and know, development, right? Meaning food and, preferences are also dependent on what your mother was eating when she was breastfeeding you, all sorts of things. Like sure. So I, and the reinforcement of, so because people hate spam 
in the rest of the world, and, and incidentally, Japanese people in Japan hate spam, um, that we dig our heels in because it's a, it's a, um, it's a cultural pride marker. It's similar to durian for people who live in um, Southeast. Filter fish for my ancestors. Okay. Right. It's like, it's, you know, it's, it's gross, but, but you, you know, you're like, well, fuck you, the rest of the world, like this is ours. And um, the, you know, you know, you're Japanese when you love spam, you know, that kind of thing. Uh And so, you know, we have spam parties, we have spam competitions, we have spam like carving, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's, there's like 15 different kinds of spam. I bought my dad a spam t-shirt that he wears, you know, it's, it's a whole thing. And, and so in in Berlin, they eat a thing called currywurst, which is a sausage with curry on it. And that comes from the, uh, the English dropping food into Berlin, which was under siege in 45, and they're sending the rations of Indian soldiers that just went back to India. So they got stuck with a bunch of rations for Indian people. And uh, they're like, well, we'll give those to the people who are stuck in Berlin because they're starving. So until today, they eat curry. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Similar kind of thing, right? Yeah. And so... um, uh, even so I'm ranting to my students as I am right now, essentially, it's just like the things that you like and the things that you believe in are not entire, at least not, you know, I would, what I was basically trying to say is like, just accept that they're not entirely yours. Like you didn't entirely make that up, you know, your language, especially. Yeah. It, that, it, right. That's another example I give. It's like it, the fact that you speak English or whatever language, you know, you speak natively uh, is determined by where you grew up. And, and no one disagrees with that. Everyone says, well, sure, if I grew up in Spain, I'd be speaking Spanish. But, that, but the notion that your political beliefs and your preferences and your notions of gender and your notions of age and your notions of life and your religion is somehow determined by outside forces is extremely un-American. It's very hard yeah. to convince and, and an American of this. I, th- I think uh, uh, another salient example is the, the units, right? So if you are free, you could are free to define a kilogram or a pound or a degree or an hour any way you want. So when I say I sold you three pounds of this, but no, we enforce <laughs> what you mean by an hour, by a pound. And, and we, we don't allow you to have this freedom to you define your own units. You know, it's, it's just this, uh, um, it's, it's, well, it's a bizarre individualistic uh, notion, which I think ties uh, to the, this aspect of the small scales versus large scales. The, the idea that individuals, there's only individuals, there's no societies. Right. Another example that just popped in my head, and I like the pound one, and just to sort of uh, put a fine point on it, is that no one disagrees that the society defines for us what an hour is. Like, no one, no one. Not just that, it's Sumerical people thousands of years ago that decided there's going to be 60 minutes in the hour, an hour. Right. Now we're stuck stuck with with this ridiculous, like, uh, non-decimal system, you know. I think the French during the revolution tried to yeah. make up a, a, ten, a 10 base system that didn't. Catch did. it. Yeah. Um, God, I wish that would have worked. That would have been kind of nice. But anyway, um, the uh, uh, so no one 
uh, disagrees with that. They're like, okay, yeah, I didn't decide what an hour is. And when I say I'm going to be there in an hour, I'm adhering to society's notion of what an hour is. But the notion that I have decided what is a good religion or what God is or what is good food or what is the proper way for a man to be, um, that and uh, what you know what we're saying is that society has given that to you. Society has has rules around that, and um, and a lot of them, you know, the vast majority of them, unspoken or unlegislated rules. Some of them legislated though, um, is very hard for people to swallow. They're, they're like, well, I wear, I wear, uh, you know, I live in um, rural Colorado, and I like to wear. Uh, camouflage uh, shirts because I because th- those are cool shirts. They're just they're just objectively cool shirts, you know. And it's like no, they're a shirt, and the society in rural Colorado has defined that a, a you know that sort of uh, uh, camouflage shirt is has been given the notions of that shirt have been given to you, and you are now. Um, you know, you're in that and that's fine. You know, you can, you can wear a camouflage shirt, but, but you didn't invent the notion that camouflage shirts were good, you know? And of course they're created by labor, probably in China. It's a big, there's a whole backstory to the shirt, but I think that one of the the problems is what we have this notion uh, in America and, and maybe a few other places that pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, you heard that. Right. Now that is based on uh, on, on on just a, a famous lie, right? So it's it's a, it's a guy who got to the fence and he couldn't get over the fence, so he pulled himself so hard, his foot bootstrapped so hard that he got that way over the fence. You know, it's a ridiculous. It's like a the Baron Munchausen who was stuck in quicksand, so he pulled his hair up, and then him and his horses start flying because he was so strong that he could pull his. You know, it's just based on a lie. <laughs> And yet people today think that, oh, oh, that's what you're supposed to do is not help and help from anybody else. And you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you, that's what I did. Therefore, that's what you should do. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just a way to, uh, to not have any compassion for people who are, uh, who who have needs. Right. And to, uh, um, I mean, you know, they, and I've had the same uh, emotions, like, Every year when I pay taxes, I pay, you know, thousands of dollars. And as a self-employed person, like I make the check out to the federal government, you know, I, I send, you know, I don't even want to tell you how much thousands of dollars to, you know, just hand a check over to Donald Trump. Here you go. You know, here's money, sir, for you. Uh, you know, obviously it's not Donald Trump's treasury and, you know, the Congress and blah, blah, but. Um, but it feels bad, you know, and, and I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to say that it, you know, every time I write that check, I'm like dancing with glee. And so, it's not like, it's not like, you know, big corporations pay taxes or. Yeah. Right. Right. So, yeah, exactly. Knowing that there's also a deep injustice behind all of it where Amazon doesn't pay taxes where, you know, when the very rich pay capital gains tax, which is a lot lower, you know, so. Yeah. So, so I, I get the right you know, in terms of their emotional reaction to it. And, and I also get that they want their money to be spent wisely and not be wasted. You know, that, that I, I totally um, agree with really. Um, But the notion that, um, 
that the taxes don't do anything and that uh, programs for, um, you know, I mean, the right often focuses on programs for uh, in their head. I'm guessing what they're thinking are is minorities and maybe even immigrants, you know, just the welfare queen, yeah. just letting them not work and have as many kids as they want, you know, but you know, those that's a uh, one, a, a cartoonish characterization. Um, but two, it, yeah. it ignores really the vast majority of people getting welfare are, are white people. One, to um, the military industrial complex. Right. It's military people. <laughs> like there are people coming out of the military right. who have it's brain injuries and who need psychological help or need, you know, skills retraining or, or, uh, or people who own, you know, the, the need an F 35 airplane to fight whatever the well, imagine is, you yeah, know, that's too. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, I, I get the emotion, but at the same time, when you understand systems and you really look like the other system that I, I sort of stumbled on, I don't know, like uh, four or five years ago, uh, I was giving a lecture with students about the fighting between uh, the right and the left. And it might've even been during the election, actually, I'm not sure 16 election. And I was, um, asking people, we were just sort of brainstorming about how, how we could look at the way the right and the left, if we just sort of um, re- reduced it at least to those elements, how um, they are reacting as a system to produce what we see today, you know, which we might characterize as uh, di- a division between the right and the left and attacks uh, waged against both sides and people sort of digging their heels in and not listening to each other. And I, I didn't know where the conversation was going to go, but as the class, um, as, and I forced them to really think, you know, zoom out and really look at it systemically. Um, suddenly I realized as I was, cause I was mapping it out on the, on the dry erase board. I suddenly realized for the first time that the left and the right uh, are both operating um, as they're 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 reacting to things that so i so i would so i compared it the analogy and i think i've talked about this on the podcast before is you know i work a lot with couples and so um couples will exist as systems and so you have uh the husband is let's just take sex versus cuddling it's something that often comes up so you have you have a husband who wants to have sex more often and you have the wife who wants more um, cuddling and um, intimacy time that doesn't have to do with sex. And so the husband is like, well, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I, I feel so angry that you haven't, we haven't had sex in two years that I don't really feel like cuddling with you because you, you, you've rejected me so many times, you know, okay. That's his position. And then you ask the wife and she's like, well, I don't really feel like having sex with you because you're mean to me and you reject me all the time. And you won't even, you won't even hug me when I come home from work. And that doesn't make me feel like I want to have sex with you. It feels like you're like an enemy or something. Okay. And so as these two individuals engage in, in what they believe to be their, they've, they've reduced the situation to, to how they've reduced it to and they keep operating that way, it just gets worse and worse and worse, and then they divorce. 
Whereas, and so if you're just talking to one person, you would be like, okay, well, how can we get your wife to have sex with you? You know, that's, that's a linear way of thinking. Or you go to the wife and you're like, well, how can we get him to cuddle more? You know, whereas if you look at the system, it's just like, well, uh, to, you know, be very simplistic, uh, both of you need to have sex and cuddle at the same time. <laughs> you just need to, you just need to like, you know, do that or figure out what systemic um, attachment need issue, emotional processes is contributing to just the lack of goodwill and, and upsetness and rejection of each other as a way of defending against each other. And then of course, if you're really broadening it out, you're like, well, what is society teaching men and women about sexuality and about what a marriage should look like and how one should protect oneself and all that kind of stuff. And the similar thing was happening between the left and the right. As far as I could tell, you had people on the left who were, um, feeling very afraid of the right in terms of their notions of uh, not wanting to spend taxes on, on programs, their notions of, um, you mean the democratic party left or do you mean the, the, the actual left? I mean like, yeah, left, um, the populace, (laughs) which is not necessarily connected to, to democratic, um, politician policy, Mm -hmm. um, you know, cultural left. Yeah they will look at the right and be like, oh my God, they're a bunch of racists. Oh my God, they're a bunch of white supremacists. Oh my God, they're, um, they are going to uh, completely allow the victimization of women. They're going to allow the victimization of brown people. They're going to deport everybody. Um, and then you had people on the, on the right who were looking at the left and saying like, oh my God, they're going to completely erase American culture. They're going to let in any, anyone from anywhere. They're going to let in terrorists and they don't, the they'll left doesn't force us to eat tofu. And yeah, they're, yeah, they're going to, yeah, they're going to force us to do this and do all, you know, listen to their dumb music us into Venezuela. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then, uh, so these fears, it's where it starts from. And then there's, then the defensiveness happens and then the attacks, you know, you're a bunch of snowflakes, you know, political correctness, you don't, you know, you don't recognize that terrorism is a thing. And then on the other side, it's like, you're a bunch of racist white supremacists. And then it just gets worse and worse and worse. And before long, no one's cuddling and no one's having sex. That was my point. But uh, unlike the couple that can divorce, we're stuck together. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice? I mean, sometimes I think, you know, like every once in a while, there's a think piece around uh, different secessions, secessions of uh, areas like the left coast could just like secede from the rest mm-hmm. of the um, We have a strong economy and a strong uh, uh, unification of ideas. Just, you know, the whole, uh, sorry for you being in Boulder. I don't know <laughs> if, if you would be absorbed into that. Maybe there could be a pocket for Boulder. Uh-huh. Um, like West Berlin or something. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah. So <laughs> sometimes I'm just like, you know, because both sides would want that. Like in Washington state, you have, you have, uh, the, the Seattle area really who, who basically is uniform in their political opinion, something like 90% of Seattle voted, uh, for Hillary. Um, and then you have the rest of the state, really, particularly uh, Eastern Washington, which is um, Trump land. And uh, both sides would love not to have to deal with each other. And so sometimes I just wonder, like, what wouldn't it be great if we could just like 
let them be them and let us be us. And then we just, we could just like, we could complain about them as our neighboring country that we don't have to deal with because they have a different political system. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's uh, the, so sometimes there's, there's too much diversity. Sometimes there's too little diversity and they both, both could be problematic. Yeah. Um, but I do think that if, yeah, if we separate it into two, you know, a red country and a blue country, then, um, there will still be enough internal diversity. It's not like we will be too uniform. Oh, no, no. We'll just kick out all the Trump supporters. We'll just eliminate them right away. Um, Re-education. Sometimes I think, yeah, exactly. Um, Sometimes I think, um, what would that be like? It'd be like um, uh, sensitivity training, lots of tofu, right? A lot of estrogen in the water. Yeah, that sort of thing. Um, Avocado toast, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, but uh, so if you if have to grow a mustache, you know, you, <laughs> every every 10th sexual encounter must be gay. <laughs> the, uh, so but the if if we return to what, where we started with the, the new atheists, there you have a, a strange combination where there are. um And, and it's it's less with Richard Dawkins because he's politically uh, a, a little better. But uh, with people like like Sam Harris and, and Christopher Hitchens, who are um, very for the Iraq War and this, but they're doing it from the uh, from from a, a point where they think of themselves as scientific and uh, enlightened, as opposed to the religious be- people being unenlightened. So they will draw the line that 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 you drew between the left and the right. They will draw it between the the enlightened rational people and the, the dark religion, you know, the, the dark ages, religious people. And, uh, and I think that that is a, 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 a very problematic, uh, place to draw the line. Uh, yeah. I've, I've had arguments actually with Umberto on the podcast, uh, in a similar vein and, and with other people around me, I, I actually had a supervisee who was totally in line with Hitchens and, the attitude towards religious people. Um, he had grown up in a, a extremely oppressive religious community and family and mm-hmm. had uh, a lot of traumas when it came to, to religion. And, and Umberto has too, actually growing up in, in Catholic Columbia. And, um, and the uh, way that I try to argue with them, I guess, is that, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the criticism is valid, but to paint every single religious person and every religious institution and every religious um, organization tradition. Uh, and tradition uh, in that light, it denies the reality, you know, uh, and what I would, um, there was, in the, with the supervisee, it was real, um, it, it was a, it was a whole process, actually. And it, actually, it was a group supervision thing where um, someone else in the group was highly religious and also extremely liberal. And, uh, you know, they would have conversations around this debate and it was, it was real hard, you know, cause once, once you, I think for a lot of people, because they grow up in real, um, tough places, um, you know, meaning that they were traumatized in the name of religion or by religious institutions. Um, they, uh, and then they read Hitchens, they read Dawkins and, you know, they, they, they read those, um, those, that rhetoric. Uh, 
that it can be quite convincing and, and can uh, be a nice place to go to. It's like, okay, finally I have a place that I can go to that understands my experience. And, and, and I, so I'm all for that, but if only the, the, they were more sophisticated about the way they, you know, I'm all for understand. And I'm, I'm an atheist and I think that atheism is, is, is great and I recommend it to everybody, but I do know that, First of all, we need to not argue with religion. We need to argue about religion or talk about religion. And uh, instead of just getting into a, a fight with we're wrong, you believe in nonsense and, and, and that kind of a fight, we need to try to talk intelligently about what is religion, where it came from, why do people believe it, what, what is going on with it, what's, why are there different levels of fervor, why are there good churches and bad churches? Um, uh, and, and there are good and bad, and certainly there's a, a big spectrum, and how can we challenge? But, you know, to, to think that it's it's just, you know, ideas fighting each other in brains. So if, if you ask someone that believes in memetics, uh, why is England uh, Protestant? They will tell you, well, it's because of the, the Protestant ideas were fighting the Catholic ideas, and the the way that the Protestant ideas were effect, uh, uh, spreading had an advantage, but... If you ask anybody that knows anything about history, they tell you, yeah, well, it's Bloody Mary. Mary I died of influenza. So England is Protestant. You know, it's, it's, it's not the ideas. It's, the, it's Queen Mary I's uh, immune system that, that was the problem. Um, that it, it, we need to, if, if you just view um, a caricature view of religion that, that, makes you think that you understand it while you actually don't, that just creates animosity on the other side that they know that they're being mischaracterized. Because uh, uh, it, it's the, the, the Bible is not like, you know, the Grimm brothers. I mean, it, it, they both have stories and they both stories that are not maybe historically factual, but the Bible is also part of a, a bunch of traditions and, and, and institutions and and buildings and you know families and and emotions and um that it's uh it's just that you need you need to understand it uh, in in a way and also when you just argue or insult religious people and say you're wrong that just makes them more religious you know cognitive dissonance makes will make them defend their stance which will make them believe it even more Right. That's, so, that's the point that, that I, uh, I'm glad you mentioned, because I think that's the most salient thing perhaps that I would want the listeners to understand, which is similar to uh, cultural right and cultural left. When uh, you, we, we want to move our society forward in a lot of ways. We want to create more equality, um, more solidarity for, for things that I think we can all agree on like um, protecting victims and uh, open dialogue and um, respect and, uh, and spending money wisely and this kind of thing. And when you, as a, uh, so, you know, if you bifurcate into at least two vocal groups, which are the new atheists and the um, religious zealots, so we say, then they just dig their heels in and there's no dialogue and there's no influence and there's no, and they believe it even more. Right. And, and they aren't open to influence. Like you can't try to talk with a Trump supporter 
or for that matter, someone on the left, um, an extreme person about uh, nuances to certain political positions, you know, like I try and it is, it is hard, man. Like it, because I for myself, I, you know, I meander down paths of certain things, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, it's a complex thing. It's a, you know, involves a complex system. And so um, if we're going to look at things rationally as they are, um, we need to be open. We need to create openness on the other side and instead of uh, creating closeness on the other side, you know, the, if we, if we want religious institutions, like the idea that uh, there's still a tremendous amount of uh, Christian organizations in the United States that are on the record as being against gay people, being against gay marriage, being, uh, seeing it as a sin. And, sure. Uh, that's a problem. We need to change that. And we're trying to, and it is changing. I mean, we're sort of brute by brute force. We're basically just. Well, also the fact that gays are everywhere. (laughs) They'll end up being in your family, you know? Right. But to the uh, religious institution in a rural area, um, they're just being rolled over by laws. You know, they're not being, you know, which is good. They, the laws need to be fair. But at the same time, I mean, who's actually entering into a dialogue with them? And are we actually helping them to feel like we are open to a dialogue with them, that we're open to what they have to say? Um, you know, there's not a lot. I, I have a fr- actually a friend of mine who um, kind of gave me the inspiration to start this podcast is one of those conversion therapists actually he's in Colorado um, and he uh, and I uh, I could reject him I could just be like okay he's an idiot he's a conversion therapist I hate him and um, you know just uh, don't dialogue with him but I've dialogued with him many times you know we we go back and forth because I want to influence him and if i if i want to influence him i can't just scream at him and i can't uh hate him i have to love him and i have to give him the benefit of the doubt i have to understand where he's coming from i have to listen and and through that i understand how people get to that place i don't agree with it at all it's completely wrong-headed and uh, you know 50 years from now i'm positive we'll look back and think it was um, abhorrent, um, as many people do today, and the laws reflect that. But, um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm not going to like call him names. I'm not going to call him names. I'm going to call his notion uh, a problem. But I'm not going to, not going to hate him. I'm not going to reject him. But that's what I find a lot of people doing in our society right now. They just, they find, they just figure out like which, you know, which side are you on, and then they just immediately. Uh, just write you off and and or attack you um, and, and many times they think so that there is a notion which is uh, i think supported by the new atheist but comes from the the frankfurt school is that uh, the, the 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 cure to the ailment of a problem is uh, of society is a talking cure so just like you know you had freud's talking cure wittgenstein had a philosophy talking cure and this is we just need dialogue. It's just the, if the if the sides talk to each other, all the the problems would get solved because they'll see each other's point of view. But sometimes that works. But sometimes, for example, when you have the the communism versus capitalism argument in the middle of the twentieth century, the 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 fact that there's an argument made that that nobody can consider anything on the other side to be in, in any way 
legitimate. And it just made people stuck in their own camps, unable to see that, that yeah, uh, the other side might have a point of view that they can learn from. And the sometimes this, the, uh, when it's the, not the right kind of talk, when it is uh, uh, aggressive, insulting, uh, you know, self-righteous talk, that that actually retards cultural progression. It doesn't uh, uh, help it. No. And that's the individual versus systems thinking, which is, you know, individually, it's like, well, I'm, I don't like it. And so I am going to reject it because I want it to change. You know, it's this, it's the same as like, I want my husband to cuddle with me more. Um, and so I'm going to yell at him about this and I, I'm not going to be open to sex until he cuddles with me. Um, and this, it's a, it's thinking about your own emotional conclusions that you come to instead of going like, wait a second, am I participating in a systemic reality that is perpetuating the problem? I, by, by alienating the, uh, the, uh, the opposing political view, by calling them names, by writing them off, by making fun of them. Actually, that's my biggest point because I've made this point before that The Daily Show and other shows, Colbert and all those other shows, I think actually created the, uh, the fervor on the right that created Donald Trump. You know, yeah. it's like, and, and, and also the, 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 the Jay Leno, the, the regular, you know, Jimmy Fallon, you know, making f- political humor, not just political humor in general. Right. Yeah. Uh, making, making fun of people and, and, and ridiculing them yeah. and whole blankets of people, not, not like an individual or a, you know, uh, an idea, but just going like, Oh my God, you know, aren't, you know, Hicks in Alabama, so stupid, you know, aren't the, aren't these people so dumb and out of touch and, and, you know, they're just laughable. Everything they do is laughable. The fact that they voted for Trump is laughable. They're all just like ridiculous human beings. And when you do that, uh, and you're laughing, ha ha ha. And, and you encourage that kind of, um, especially it's so dominant on the left. Um, you're, you're just, you're hurting people's feelings. And what are they going to do when their feelings are hurt? Well, they're not going to go like, Oh my God, you know what? You're right. Left people. Um, you just, you really made a good joke there. Um, I'm convinced I'm going to change my mind. That's not how people work, you know? And so every time you tune into that kind of comedy or, or make that kind of comedy and I'm guilty of it for sure. Uh, we're just creating, we're just participating in the problem. Well, it's and it's also something that is particular to America because in the United States you have uh, rural white people, uh, what some people would call white trash, is the only minority, uh, you know, it's subgroup that it's legitimate to insult like that. You cannot insult any other group the way the people insult uh, what they would call white white trash. It's right. it's a weird, it's a weird. Uh, thing that that is socially acceptable i mean i think that there's there's parties that are themed you you need to dress up as a as a white trash person and that's you know i think that 50 years from now we're going to look at that like like blackface we're going to look that you know it's it's, it's such such a a a horrible thing that people do not see that that is not a legitimate thing and there's no i mean when there, there is no category, and I mean the whole name, white trash, as if they're 
black is obviously trash. These are white and they're trash. Yeah, it's it just the whole thing is 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 very problematic and it's very uh, um, it's 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 a, it's a weird blind spot that you right. have. So not only is it immoral right. and hurtful, it's immoral, it's hurtful and therefore immoral. Um, but it is participating in the um, in the system that is producing the fighting and the it gridlock. Yeah. And the elevation of, of, you know, the, one of the biggest reasons why people voted for Trump is not because of his political views, but was because he pissed off the left. He he was their warrior, you know, Jordan Peterson is the same. It's like they, people love Jordan Peterson because finally they have a spokesperson that is uh, that they believe to be intelligent and and respectable, who is standing up to the left. Like we do not need a society in which we choose political figures to rule the free world based on their ability to piss off half the country. You know that yeah. that's and and the right is guilty of that, obviously, but the left is just as guilty because we were the ones who created the emotional experience for the right to want to do such a thing, you know, and it it wasn't as prevalent in the past because we didn't have as much news infotainment and Twitter and everything the way we do today, where you can just instantly ridicule, you know, the left gave up on solidarity with the Clintons. I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, there there is, they went just for meritocracy. That's the neoliberal turn. That's the, and it's, um, uh, and it's disastrous. Yeah. They, uh, yeah. I remember when that happened, it was, it was sort of like um, in my uh, perception, of course, it's, I'm sure it's a impossible thing to really quantify or to, to know, but to me in the nineties, I remember there was this pretty big backlash on hippies and on the sixties movement. I remember in the nineties, it was like, people would make fun of hippies, you know, they'd be like, Oh, hippies with, you know, they're just like free love and power, you know, like flower power. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was just, yeah, lots of just making fun of them, you know? And because it was out of fashion for the most part, it would just, it, it was recent enough that it, and, but far enough that it was different from the nineties, but recent enough that um, there wasn't a privileging of it, you know? And, uh, and then there was this, this sort of new version of eighties materialism and individualism. Yeah. That I guess infected the left as well. Um, well, the, the democratic party, right. The, the, the end of welfare, the deregulation, the, the, you know, the, yeah. the Clinton, uh, re- regime, which he, he couldn't have gotten anything that he got passed. He couldn't have gotten if he had a democratic Senate and house. Right. Only was able to pass, you know, ending welfare, you know, deregulating the banks, deregulating the media, giving us Fox News, all those things he would have not been able to do if he had a a leftist Senate and House, but he didn't. Right. And then Bernie comes along and like, you know, kind of gets that whole thing going again. But anyway, we're uh, interesting um, conversation that. uh, uh, So any final word? that maybe you didn't get to regarding new atheists? 
So, uh, you know, if we do recap a little bit since we went all over the place, um, I think that if you look back and you see this, this uh, uh, academic battle, which happened on the one side with people who have physics envy, where they think that everything um, the, that all the solutions are looking at the small scales. It's the game theory of everything. It's pitting one school against another. It's, um, you know, uh, 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 publish or perish in academia that we can quantify the number of, of, of articles instead of reading the article, see if the person is smart, we're going to quantify it and going to, you know, quantify how good a, a teacher is, how good a doctor is, and we're going to set them against each other. And it's been a complete disaster. Uh, in academia as, as, as well, you know, it's, it's, it's horrible. People are just, they, they cut their ideas into the smallest publishable things so that they, so they can have a large number of, of publications. It's not about being smart and saying smart things. It's um, that you have that one tradition and the other tradition, you have the postmodernist and the, the things, the large scales and seeing that history is the, affects everything and they sort of faded away and complexity theory in, in academia replaced both of these for people who are really trying to understand the world. But we are stuck with um, a political system and an economic system and as well as the new atheists who are still living this world of the small scales are good, the large scales are bad, the postmodernists are fraud. Um, that, you know, selfish gene, ragged individualism, pull yourself out by the bootstraps, you know, everybody's accomplishments are of their own. There's no society, there's only individuals. And we're stuck with, with this uh, um, mode of thinking that came out of just uh, uh, an argument with postmodernists. It's not, an, it, it doesn't come from a, an attempt to, understand the world. It, it is a contrarian kind of a position that is the dominant one. And I think that needs to be reconsidered. And, uh, um, uh, and we took that and we went uh, many directions with it, but um, hopefully the listeners got something out of it. Yeah, that was uh, perhaps the most meandering conversation you and I have had, but um, I had a good time. I did too. <laughs> um, hopefully you did out there. Let us know what you think. You can email me at contact at psychologyandseattle.com. You, you can, can email contact, me. You can contact Yuval uh, Lor at, is it at gmail.com? Yeah, Yuval Lor, my first name and last name at gmail.com. Uh, Y-U-V-A-L. L A O R. That's right. Yuvalaor at gmail.com. Um, or send me an email and I'll forward it to him. Um, yeah. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself and try to pay attention to the system because we all deserve it. Mm-hmm.